invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning. Beginning of verse 29, the scripture says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with him when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of his nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hands into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas said, or Thomas with them, and then came Jesus, the, uh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Our Father in heaven, again we come before you asking that you would uh, be in control of this service and this message. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would search our hearts to see if there is something in our hearts that needs to be made right with you. And we pray, Lord, the word of God, which is a cleansing agent, will do that work this morning. We thank you for it, and we pray your blessing upon it as it's preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I think surely most of every one of us have heard the phrase, Doubting Thomas. Uh, that's a descriptive name that has endured the centuries in seemingly a mock honor of the apostle who vocally expressed his doubt. Thomas was the lone apostle absent from the first post-resurrection appearance of Christ. All of the others believed. Thomas resisted believing and has for centuries exposed the doubt and unbelief that lurks in the human heart. I think many of us can identify with Thomas. While his partners in the apostolic band had already seen the risen Christ, Thomas would not accept their testimony. The things he had looked for, insisted on in order to express faith, are the same kinds of things that produce doubt in our own day. Exposing the roots of his doubt really exposes every doubter to the folly of his unbelief. And we cannot live with unbelief. It deprives a sinner of his desperately needed justification and right standing before God. When it creeps back in, the thoughts of us who are believers, it stops our witness, it stops our obedience, it stops our service. And many people try to avoid owning up to the reality of their unbelief. Uh, they pretend to be true believers, uh, they put on a fake smile among the saints. But the agony of doubt and unbelief still irritates their souls. 
Now we can criticize Thomas for his unbelief and doubt of the resurrection of the Lord. But we must not be in a hurry in that criticism. Perhaps doubt has lingered in our own hearts, depriving us of the joy of salvation or troubling us with uncertainties related to assurance of salvation. And I've heard testimonies from those right here in our congregation who have had doubts about their salvation. And perhaps there's someone here today that has a doubt concerning their salvation. There is a cure for doubters in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we must give ourselves to seeing the cure for our doubts concerning the saving work of Jesus Christ. How do we confront doubt and unbelief in our own midst? Well, notice with me, first of all, the cure for doubters. We look at the roots of doubt. Look at the roots of doubt. You know, a tree is no better than its roots. If it's... Roots are decaying, then so will the tree. Back in June, we had a windstorm here. Were a number of trees in our community that were blown down. And this occurred for some trees, but not for others. As often is the case, when examining the trees, which seemed to be healthy and full of foliage, one would no doubt discover that its roots had rotted causing them to easily be blown over in the strong wind. There are multitudes of people that seem to have an outward look of a Christian today, especially on Sunday. But what is going on in their roots? Ultimately, the reality of spiritual roots will be exposed, either by the winds of persecution, the demands of the word, or the finality of judgment. And when our lives have never been anchored in the truth of the person and work of Christ, being united in Him in saving faith, then the day of eternal calamity looms before us. Thomas was living in what we could be certainly describing as a dangerous and exciting time. It was dangerous in that Christ had been crucified due to the fierce opposition by the Jewish leaders in Israel. It was exciting due to the teaching and the promise of Christ concerning the days ahead. Thomas seemed to be kind of stuck in between. It may have been his fear of of danger that kept him from the first encounter with the risen Lord by the collective gathering of the disciples. It may have been the excitement of the ten disciples joyfully talking about the resurrection that brought Thomas into the assembly of saints once again. Whether danger or excitement, Thomas himself was kind of stuck in his doubt. Someone has described Thomas as a robust doubter. In spite of repeated explanation by the other disciples of the fact of the resurrection, Thomas would not believe. And he was almost arrogant in his unbelief. He said, except I see in his hands the print of his nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He was emphatic that he was going to believe only on his own terms. The language shows that the disciples kept telling him over and over, we have seen the Lord. 
But Thomas, to Thomas, it did not matter. As we kind of brush away the dirt that covers the roots of his life, we began to see Thomas's doubt, roots of doubt. He was no stranger to humanity, and what we see in Thomas is precisely what we find in many, many people again and again, perhaps some even in our midst here today. But notice, first of all, the dissatisfaction with proclamation. We have seen the Lord, the disciples kept saying to Thomas. We can surely surmise that John is just giving us the thumbnail sketch of what they had stated. It may have been over a period of several days, perhaps a whole week, that the disciples kept testifying to the reality of the risen Lord. Uh, Those things which they had learned concerning the redemptive work of Christ, the true meaning of the crucifixion and the genuineness of the resurrection were surely topics of conversation. Uh, They were full of life and joy, knowing that Christ was alive. Their faith was firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ. They had enjoyed a bit of help in this, but for Christ had appeared to them bodily. And they were astonished that the grave could not hold him. They were confident that he was the Messiah, promised centuries before, and that he had accomplished their redemption through his substitutionary death on the cross. Thomas just could have could not bring himself to believe. He could not bring himself to believe what they had proclaimed. The message of death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was not sufficient for him, or so he thought. He wanted and even demanded that he must put his finger into the nail-pierced hands of Christ and put his hand into the wound of Christ's side before he would believe. Quite clearly, Thomas was establishing his own criteria for faith in Christ. He said, except I shall see with my eyes and put, that is, feel with my hands, I will not believe. In his insistence upon having it his way, Thomas was rejecting the means which God has given for sinners to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was dissatisfied with the proclamation of the gospel and insisted on some type of physical evidence before he would acquiesce in belief. And yet his proclamation of sinners without outward uh, physical signs that God has promised to bless In the saving of sinners. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, the great chapter calling men to faith in Christ, Paul asked some searching questions. He said, How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? The necessity of hearing the word of the gospel is insisted upon by Paul. He goes so far as to declare, So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Obviously, not all who hear believe, but only those who hear the word or read it have the possibility of believing. I think this puts a few important issues before us. First of all, we are the preachers. I say, we are the preachers. Not just this person but we are the preachers 
We must use the means God has given to us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. If men do not come in faith or to faith in Christ by, uh, well, they do not come by faith uh, in Christ by osmosis. I know some of you tried to study for tests that way back when you were a student. You'd just put your book under your pillow and say, I've got a test tomorrow. I've got to just let this stuff soak up through the pillow into my head. But people don't come to faith in Christ by that way either. You don't just put your head on the Bible and say, I want faith. It's not by natural generation. It's not by cultural merger. But only through the word proclaimed. And then we must be about the business of proclamation. It's the proclamation of the gospel that the Holy Spirit gives grace to the believe, uh, to believe and to be saved. Jesus, or Paul, expressed the same thought in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word given of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Something mysterious and dynamic occurs in the proclamation of the word. It's the Holy Spirit united with the truth of the word, with saving grace, so that these Thessalonians were brought to a saving relationship with Christ. Secondly, if the proclamation is this important and vital, to the eternal salvation of men, then we must avail ourselves of every opportunity to have them hear the word proclaimed. So many professing Christians attend proclamation of the word uh, by convenience rather than out of a sense of need or even necessity. Thomas's own absence from the first resurrection assembly of the saints left him uh, for a week of unbelief. I think that's a good reason not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the writer of Hebrew warns us. Thirdly, if the word of God puts such vital stress on the proclamation of the gospel, then it would be to the benefit of everyone gathered here today to pay heed to the truths proclaimed. We're not here just to try up and f- try to fill up an hour on Sunday. <coughs> don't have anything better to do today, so I'm just going to go to church and fill up my time. If you're here for that reason, you're here for the wrong reason. We're here to challenge one another to be proclaimers. We're here to proclaim the gospel of Christ. I wonder how many times we encourage one another, challenge one another with with testimonies of the people that you spoke to about Christ this past week. We're here to proclaim the gospel of Christ, which alone can save sinners from their sins and from the wrath of God. And that's what our purpose is when we walk out of those doors. There's the dissatisfaction with the proclamation. Thomas wasn't satisfied just to hear them say, we have seen the Lord. He came up with his own 
criteria for faith. Secondly, there's security in the senses. Thomas had security in his senses. Rather than hearing the word proclaimed through the other disciples and believing that word, Thomas insisted on trusting the security of his own senses. He was willing to forfeit the truth proclaimed for what he could see and feel. He said, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas opted to trust two of his five senses to bring him to faith in the risen Lord. If he could only see, if he could only touch, then he would believe the gospel message. And what has to be one of the most forceful rebukes recorded in God's word, our Lord called Thomas's hand upon his own self-made design for faith. He told Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now earlier in the gospel, Jesus had encountered a sign-seeking Galileans who wanted some kind of physical manifestation before they would believe in Christ. Jesus told a royal official among them, except ye see signs and wonders, ye ye will not believe. And Thomas had this same mentality when he uh, would connect his faith to his senses. Do you have to see it? Now, I think many, if not most, this morning would say, I'm a Christian. I trusted Christ. Did you see Christ? Anybody see Christ? No. Have you felt him? You see, this is Thomas's thinking. He will only believe if he sees him and feels him. We face the same sort of security and senses in our day by the masses who want signs and wonders. People will travel thousands of miles to see someone blow on a person and make them fall down or touch them and cause them to begin strutting around the platform like a chicken. But they won't walk across the street to hear the glorious gospel of grace proclaimed. Their focus is on the physical, not the spiritual. And I remind you of what Christ said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. It is not the sight of physical manifestations that brings faith to a sinner. It's the hearing the saving word proclaimed and embraced by faith that brings a man out of darkness into the light of Christ. There is thirdly, the aspect of stubbornness in the faith of truth. I'll go back there so you can see that again, since you missed it. All right. Stubbornness in the face of truth. Thomas was stubborn even in the face of ten witnesses who kept telling him the liberating truth of the gospel. He said, I will not believe. He said, I will not believe unless I can believe in my own way. Thankfully, we see the mercy of the Lord, even though he gave Thomas a very stern rebuke. But we must not think that every time a person tries to come up with his own terms of salvation that the Lord's going to give in. He will not. 
He demands faith in sinners upon the facts of the gospel truth. Salvation comes his way and his, his way alone. Let me ask you this morning, have you been trying to set your own plans for God to work out your salvation in your life? Have you been saying, oh, I will believe, but first the Lord must do this and this and this. Or have you been attaching strings to your faith? I will believe, but only if the Lord will provide this or that for me. Have you created your own obstacles and barriers to true faith in Christ? You may say, I want to believe, but first I must have certain feelings or a particular experience to verify that the Lord was truly saved me. Listen, Jesus Christ is sufficient to save you without your strings and your additions if you will just flee to him. That's the roots of doubt in Thomas's life and in the lives of many people in our day in which we live. Notice, secondly, the uprooting of doubt. Thomas had everything all mapped out on how things must go for him to believe. But Jesus Christ uprooted them all. Notice what Christ did here. There's a divine confrontation here in verse 27. He confronts Thomas with the very wounds that Thomas had proudly stated he must see and touch. All right? He says, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. Now, the verbs used here in this sentence are given in such a way as to suggest a command. We cannot get the idea that Jesus was quietly making some suggestions to the Thomas. No, he was confronting the arrogance of Thomas to the message proclaimed to him. He was exposing the unbelieving mind that Thomas persisted to maintain, even in the light of constant explanation to the other disciples. He said, reach, behold, reach. Thrust and be not faithless. That all gives to us a very strong sense of confrontation of Jesus Christ to Thomas. And you imagine for a moment the foolishness that Thomas felt. What grief must have smitten him when he realized that he had doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This confrontation was painful. It was convicting. It was convincing. It resulted in Thomas's immediate confession of Jesus as Lord and God. Thomas had created his own barriers to faith, just as some of you have. You have stacked one thing upon another. You insist on being removed, that, that you insist be removed before you're going to come truly to faith in Christ. Listen, look at the wounds of Jesus Christ for your sins. Look at the penalty he bore in his own body on the cross. Quit your unbelief. Be not faithless. See the stubbornness and the folly of your own heart that would dare to make excuses for faith or attach strings to faith in Christ. The confrontation by Christ shows us that the great lengths he goes to saving sinners, even stubborn sinners. And there was no whispering voice that came to Thomas in his sleep, but this strong conversation or confrontation by the suffering servant 
And Thomas needed to understand the weight of Christ's suffering on his behalf. He needed to see the death of Jesus was purposeful in the saving of sinners. He demonstrated this in his resurrection. And I know of nothing more important that I can point out to any of you today than the truth of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Look at him as he proclaimed the gospel. See the reality of his suffering, not because of sin on his part, for he had none. See that he bore the shame of your own sin and separation from God. And through his wounds you are healed from the wretchedness and lostness of eternal damnation. Why should you make excuses or impose your own barriers to faith in him? You need to flee to him and the one who died and rose from the dead to give you life. Look to Christ. So there's a divine confrontation, but there's also a divine imperative. Strongest term found in this passage, very simple, be not faithless, but believing. Could literally be expressed, you yourself stop the unbelief you're living in and begin believing. Thomas was persisting in unbelief. Now Christ commanded him to stop. Stop your unbelief. How can he make such a demand of Thomas? Well, Thomas was doubting the reality of the resurrection, which in itself was also doubting the sufficiency and effectual work of the death of Christ. Thomas was doubting everything that Jesus Christ came to do on behalf of sinners. This is really what unbelief expresses. It's a doubting or even a denying of the effectiveness of the work of Christ. It's the same as saying that Jesus Christ fulfilled no purpose and that his death had no value. You can persist in unbelief. And if you do, you're joining the ranks with such denial of the eternal purposes of of God through Christ. Secondly, Jesus Christ has the right to demand that we stop our unbelief and begin believing in him. He's the creator and the Lord of creation. He reigns as sovereign over the universe. We live and move and have our being in him. He also is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul went as far as stating, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All men have the responsibility to follow follow wholly what God, the Creator, has demanded. He demands our repentance and faith in Him. And what Jesus demanded of Thomas was nothing different from what He demands of everyone. If you think the gospel demands apply to everyone but you, then you're mistaken about the scriptures and about the being of God. Thirdly, God has no pleasure in our unbelief. It's a sin of the highest degree, an offense against the character of the Almighty. And the writer of Hebrews warns us, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You said, Pastor, I thought you were just talking to unbelievers. Well, now not the writer of Hebrews says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. 
Our Lord tells us, He that believeth on him is not condemned, and he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And finally, the only hope that Thomas had for eternity was to leave his unbelief behind, cast himself obedient in obedient faith upon Jesus Christ. You see, eternity was at stake. The command of Christ to quit his unbelief and began believing was not to bring harm on Thomas or to deprive him of some pleasure in life or to keep him from enjoying life to its fullest. Faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified is the only hope for sinners. And the call to quit unbelief also comes with the demand to believe. Be not faithless, but believing. Faith rests securely in Jesus Christ and his finished work for the redemption of sinners. The faith that Jesus demanded was in light of his death and resurrection. He demands not that we merely believe that God exists, even though the, even the devil, uh, demons in hell do that. Instead, he calls for our faith to leave behind all the things which we cling to in order to commend ourselves to God. Leave behind your good works. Leave behind your service, your acts of charity, which we think will put us into a right position with God. That is mere folly. Even filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. And so we are to cast ourselves upon the person of Jesus Christ as God, the very God who became a man for us. We're to rest securely in the sufficiency of his righteousness for us, both in his, in his obedience to the law on our behalf and his bearing the judgment of God against us at the cross. We're to cling to him as the one who died for us and was buried. And then the third day rose forever over all the conquering power of death, sin, and hell. Be not faithless, but believing. Do you believe? Again, the best cure I know of for doubters is to look deeply and closely at Jesus Christ and his finished work. And what can you add to what's already done? He said, it is finished. Rest in him and leave your belief, unbelief behind. And so that brings us to the embracing of faith. Thomas was never the same after the uprooting of his doubts and his response to to the demand of Christ. He's pictured as a serious-minded, perhaps even morbid type in the Gospel of John. You remember, it was Thomas who woefully declared that the apostolic band should go to Jerusalem to die with Jesus. He said, let us also go that we may die with him. It was Thomas who said on behalf of the disciples that he did not know where Christ was going nor how to follow. He said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest and how we can know the way. So now Thomas is liberated by the faith, embrace of faith in the risen Christ and the Lord. First, he's liberated in the sense or he embraces the faith in confession. We see his immediate confession of Christ, my Lord and my God. And though the other disciples expressed their belief in the risen Christ first, none would offer a more dramatic and clear testimony to the nature and saving power of Jesus Christ than did Thomas. There's no doubt that he saw Jesus Christ as he had never seen them in the moments before. 
He finally understood that Jesus was not a political Messiah waiting to uh, around just to sit upon a, a limited kingdom. Instead, he's the Lord of all, sovereign of all creation. He's not just the best man that ever lived. No, he was much more. He is God himself. The reality that God came to redeem him through his sin overwhelmed Thomas in that moment. So he cried, my Lord and my God. The embrace of faith was a way to bring out the exclamations from the depths of our hearts. And we see this best, I suppose, in some of the wonderful hymns that have been a part of our faith. I think of some examples. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. We also sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or we sing, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that day. For who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I wonder this morning, what is your confession of Christ? Thomas confession was my Lord and my God. And then faith becomes sight. Thomas saw and believed. But that kind of faith is not blessed by Jesus Christ. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. In other words, Thomas, was it only because you could physically see the wounds that caused you to believe? And yet you would not believe the truth proclaimed about me and the truth of the scripture spoke of me? We find in these words a clear indication that faith does not need props. Faith is not to rely upon some scene to outwardly affect the mind. Instead, faith finds its foundation in the truth of the gospel proclaimed. And we notice here in this this, uh, 29th verse a hidden beatitude. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. The blessing of peace with God through Jesus Christ the Lord belongs to those who do not cling to some kind of outward physical manifestation. Instead, they look to Jesus Christ, Him crucified and raised from the dead. They look with eyes of faith upon the hearing, the saving word proclaimed. Faith becomes sight. The man in hell wanted Abraham to send the poor beggar Lazarus from heaven to earth to warn his brothers of the torment which they were facing. Abraham told the man, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. them. The man argued, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He wanted the spectacular to catch their attention, physical sight to initiate spiritual response. And the reply of Abraham applies clearly in this 
text here. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So the message is very clear. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith upon the revelation of the gospel of Christ as proclaimed in the word of God brings a helpless, unconcerned sinner into the joyful relationship of a child of God. Are you unbelieving this morning? Then look with eyes of faith to Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the gospel. See him as the only mediator between God and man. See him as the only king and lord before whom you must bow. See him as your righteousness before God. Look to Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel and have your doubts washed away. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father,